Hello. The first time I came to St Luke's was on the Greenbelt Sunday three years ago. We were looking for somewhere to get married and found out that this was our parish church. We'd had no reason to know that before. We looked at the website and we came to have a look at the church on a walk one evening and I remember standing in the garden and feeling really interested in all of the things that seemed to be going on in this building and feeling a bit wistful, wishing there was something like this around here for me. I assumed that St Luke's wasn't for me because my previous contact with Christianity mostly consisted of going to a funny born-again Christian youth group in the Midlands when I was about 15 because my friend fancied one of the boys. And what I remember most about that experience is one of the youth group leaders explaining to me very earnestly and in a lot of detail how the timeline of the Old Testament was literally true in spite of contradictory evidence from fossil fuels, which he could explain away. In fact, that wasn't one of the most pressing questions of my adolescence, but there you are. <laughs> so I think I thought that whatever you were all doing in here might be more to do with believing six impossible things before breakfast than with any of the questions that I had, and still have, about how to live, how to have real contact with other people, and how to do meaningful work in the world. That is, with questions I'd been approaching through political activism and through working as a psychologist and psychotherapist. Dave's talk that Sunday was about Lammas Day and celebrating the wheat harvest, a day when it used to be the custom to bring to church a loaf from the new harvest. He argued that food and compassion and God and faith are all bound up together. I'm sure you can imagine Dave arguing that. <laughs> if religion isn't rooted in the real stuff of life, then what does it have to offer? Obviously forgetting to mention that it might offer some important theories about how long coal takes to form and what this means for the Old Testament timeline. Part of the talk was about Dave's enthusiasm for bread. He listed quite a few kinds of bread that he likes, with a special mention for Peshwari Nam. But he also talked about being rooted in a community, and he clearly liked people too. He also said that day, you're welcome just as you are. And here I am, three years later, feeling welcome. I'm partly telling you this because it's on my mind in this interregnum time between vicars, I suppose with the hope that this will continue to be a place where I'm welcome. And I'm partly telling you because, as you may have heard or read in the newsletter, there's a theme for these talks during the interregnum, which is, meet this figure from the Bible who you may not know much about. I was a bit concerned about this, having already agreed previously to do the talk, because I'm not really in a position to introduce anyone else to figures in the Bible. But after talking to Martin and to Meg Warner, who knows everyone in the Bible, it seemed as though what I wanted to talk about today was not unrelated to Eve. Now, I know you will definitely already have met Eve, but actually we can sort of make it work, bear with me, because really we don't know much about her. She goes from being created to being kicked out of the Garden of Eden in only 24 verses. In my edition of the Bible, that's rib to outcast in less than a page. After that, she only appears when she's listed as being someone's mum. In his book, The Rise and Fall of Adam and Eve, Stephen Greenblatt looks at the story of Adam and Eve and the central place this short but powerful story has in three of the world's major religions and beyond. Not only for theologians and preachers, but for philosophers, physicians, natural scientists, artists, and, of course, misogynists. One of the things Meg told me about Eve was about the meaning of her name. One interpretation is that her name means helper, and the text in Genesis says that she was created because amongst the birds, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air, there was not found a help meet for Adam. And there's debate about this. Should the Hebrew text be translated as referring to a helper for Adam, or a helper comparable to Adam, or a partner? And what help is she there to give? We don't hear much about her helping Adam with his responsibility to keep and till the earth. 
One interpretation is that she gives him the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that is the help. However, she also then becomes the first scapegoat, taking however many thousands of years of blame for the sin in the world, and particularly providing an excuse for women to be treated as immoral and easily beguiled. In his letter to Timothy, for example, St. Paul says, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. It's worth noting that God also formed fish and birds before either of them, so maybe we should all be quiet. (laughs) That's a way of seeing the story of Eve that appeals to me. Because I think that being human involves an ongoing and difficult relationship with what you know and how truthful and aware you can be to yourself and in your contact with others and the consequences of what we might have to face and know, as well as the consequences of defending yourself against having a clear-eyed view of reality. It's also slightly more familiar territory because I think this is what psychotherapy is all about. Just to say, of course, that being human is also about really enjoying things like Peshwari Naan. I'm just not talking about that bit today. <laughs> In psychoanalytic psychotherapy, we talk about defense mechanisms as being the strategies we use without consciously planning to, to protect ourselves from the anxiety that would be created by unacceptable thoughts and feelings. And these defenses include things like denial and projection and repression of unwanted ideas. We all need these. Going without them would be a bit like having no skin. But relying on them too much is like going around in a clunky suit of armor that protects you not only from distress and anxiety, but from joy, from contact with others and from contact with reality. Some things are hard to face and patients might come to psychotherapy feeling unsure whether they want to know more about themselves and the feelings they're wrestling with. As an example, it can be overwhelmingly hard to let yourself know about your own experiences of childhood physical abuse and the way this is making you depressed and withdrawn with your own children. Because when you've experienced a lot of terrifying violence in your own childhood, being depressed and withdrawn can feel a lot less flammable than knowing more about the rage that you're afraid might be underneath. Sometimes it's easier to continue the way we have been, somewhat muffled and defended by our assumptions about ourselves and others, either making others into the scapegoats for everything that's wrong, or maybe even the opposite, perhaps finding it easier to hold on tightly to the idea that it's we ourselves who are the problem, because we can't bear to feel the anger and loss that might come with the idea that we did not have it coming. Knowing about difficult things is hard for patients, but it's also hard for workers, for professional helpers. In her classic paper written in 1960, psychoanalyst Isabel Mingus Lythe writes about a consultation she was asked to do in a training hospital, where many student nurses were dropping out before completing their training. She writes in a really interesting way about the amount of human stuff these nurses were having to face, or find a way not to face, every day, just in an average day on a ward. Life and death, dependency, anxiety and fear, loss and love, regret and pain. In the context of all of that, she suggests, reducing the human being in front of you to the liver in bed 10 can be a way of managing how much knowledge you have to bear before the end of your shift. 44 years later, in 2004, child psychotherapist Margaret Rustin wrote a paper about the case of abuse and murder of eight-year-old Victoria Clembier by her great-aunt and her boyfriend in the year 2000. And she also writes very helpfully about how it came to be that all of the professionals who came into contact with Victoria, and there were many from many different health and social care and education and church contexts, they all somehow failed to put the pieces together and know what they were seeing before it was too late. 
Rustin points out that in the Lemming inquiry into Victoria's death, her physical injuries are well documented, but much less is said about the mental and psychological pain she must have endured. Rustin suggests this isn't just because we can see evidence of physical injuries, but also because there's a high cost involved in being attuned to the sort of suffering that Victoria was undergoing. I know I find it unbearable to try to imagine. So imagine trying to know that, to really know about it, especially when you may have 50 families on your caseload, some of whom you may not even have had time to meet yet. Cases like Victoria's can make us want to design ever more thorough systems for documenting and recording concerns, even though this might leave frontline workers with even less time and headspace for tuning in to their patients and clients. It seems to me that we can only really help people with the task of helping by offering them some containment, by offering them, in turn, the chance and the space to have their anxieties known and disentangled, and a bit of solidarity with the task of facing all of this complicated human stuff. I'm sorry to break this to you, but neoliberal market-based health and social care systems don't really offer this. <laughs> the discourse around mental health can be quite disorientating. Some phrases that I've heard at work particularly stick in my mind. I could do a whole talk about these, but just a couple. Um, such as the need for accelerating innovation in children's mental health provision, as if it's not acceptable for some very important things like love and care and attention to be slow and old. Some of the language is straightforwardly obscuring, like when one of the commissioners for our service started talking to my managers about opportunities for negative growth. Just give you a moment to consider what negative growth might be. There can be a sort of macho culture where workers are encouraged to not know what they're seeing as well. An example that springs to mind is of a primary wellbeing practitioner who came to a training I did about suicide. This is a, a young woman in her early 20s. And she told me about finding herself in tears at her desk after getting halfway through a series of back-to-back -back telephone assessments with patients on the waiting list at her service, many of whom were describing suicidal states of mind as well as their frustration and despair with not being offered the help that they'd sought in a, in a timely way. She was embarrassed but also relieved to get an email calling her into her supervisor's office, though perhaps less relieved to hear a supervisor suggest that if she couldn't handle the work without getting upset, perhaps she wasn't cut out for the job and had better leave. The problem is, you can't really shut down part of your mind and your thinking and feeling without compromising the rest. As Margaret Rustin says, of particular relevance, this is in the Lemming report into Victoria's death again, are frequent examples of turning a blind eye. That is, failing to see what is before one's eyes because to do so would cause too much psychological disturbance. We need to take care of people who are doing these helping jobs, not only because it's nice and thoughtful of us to be considerate to them, and we can feel good about it, but because if we don't offer them the support and containment they need in their task, they just can't do the job. And if that wasn't reason enough, many of them will also get burnt out pretty quickly and end up on extended sick leave or leaving the profession. Instead, professionals, particularly social workers and more recently nurses, can get a really bad press when something goes wrong. A good example is that of Sharon Shoesmith, who was the head of Haringey Children's Services at the time of the case of Baby P and was hounded and vilified by the media, particularly The Sun, and sacked by the Secretary of State, Ed Balls, during a press conference. She's since written a PhD thesis and a book trying to understand what happened during that inquiry and her experience of being scapegoated. Complicated stories are difficult. Perhaps we just want to find someone to blame and expel and to believe that that's the job done. 
Sometimes it can be described almost as an expensive luxury to offer frontline workers proper supervision and time to talk to each other about their feelings and their work. Just as an aside, I note that in the news last week it was reported that the pay for chief executives at Britain's largest companies rose six times faster than the wages for the rest of the workforce last year, with average pay packets for CEOs hitting 3.9 million. It would take frontline workers around 170 years to earn that single year's salary. It's an interesting question what, as a society, we think we can and can't afford. To come back to where I started, I think communities like St Luke's are also part of the way we attend to the task of helping and how we can support it properly. When I'm here, I'm challenged to think by the talk and the prayers and the readings, but also contained by the offer of welcome and forgiveness and understanding of the complex business of being a human. And the music is great, and then you get a cup of tea at the end. It's the full package. In a way, I would find it really hard to pin down. All of this has helped me to do my job better in the last three years, and I'm so grateful for that. <laughs>